Sounds especially for the podcast. I even put the right faders up, didn't I, Daniel? You got it absolutely spot on. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Hello, Richard. Good morning. Nice to see you again. Yeah, really good to see you too. Yes. And uh, before we get started, in advance, I know we're here next week, but Merry Christmas. Indeed. Yes. Since this is our Christmas yes. special from yeah. uh, an hour and a half's worth of us. Or if you're listening to us on the podcast, Happy New Year. Yes. Because <laughs> chances are it won't be up till then. No. <laughs> I wouldn't have said such things. Should we have a look what's going yeah, on? Yeah, sorry, I retract that last statement. Yes. Sorry. We've got a, uh, there's some interesting films coming up in the next few days at the local screens. So uh, tonight at uh, 7.30 at the Annick Playhouse, The Three Musketeers. No, we, we were talking about Paul W.S. Anderson last week with Event Horizon and the fact that he has essentially got himself into a rut after that very good underrated film. I think... There are individual things about The Three Musketeers which I find passingly entertaining, like, you know, the performances. I think, you know, Jovovich does costume drama fairly well, um, but it's just a bit flat, and I know it's not going to be shown in 3D at the Playhouse, but regardless, it's unnecessary. Yeah, I was going to say we'd cover it in the top ten, but it's not in the top ten at the moment. No, Monday night, The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn. Which has just gone out of the top ten, and I, I still think, you know, it's not first-rung Spielberg, or indeed first-rung Peter Jackson, who's on, involved at a production level. The story's a bit stodgy, but the action set pieces are spectacular. No, it reminds you that, no, everything that was good about the first three Indiana Jones films, and I think yeah. this is the closest that Spielberg has come in the last ten years to recapturing just the light-hearted brio of those films. So if you've got children under the age of twelve, they'll really enjoy it. And that's two o'clock Monday afternoon. Did I say Monday evening? I didn't mean it. It's two o'clock Monday it's afternoon, the adventures... Two o'clock in the morning. Yes. And the Playhouse box office number is 01665 510785. Meanwhile, up at the Maltings in Berwick, uh, Wednesday evening, 8.30, Strictly Ballroom. Which is great. If you've, it's the debut film by Baz Luhrmann, who many people will know from his reinterpretation of um, Romeo and Juliet with Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio, or my personal favourite, which is Moulin Rouge with Jim Broadbent and Ewan McGregor, which I think is just outstanding. Yeah, great film. Now, I don't, yeah. It's one of those films where you, you have a spare of films where you you don't trust anyone who doesn't like them and no Mulholland Drive, Moulin Rouge, Clockwork Orange, they're all in there because Baz Luhrmann is one of those directors who, in the same way as Ken Russell actually, just has this unbridled love of cinema and will go in all guns blazing and you either love him or hate him. Strictly Ballroom is his debut effort. It's more low budget than the other instalments of his Red Curtain trilogy, of which the others are Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. But it's really, really great, and uh, considering that the, his version of The Great Gatsby is coming out next year, it's uh, a good way to start the build-up, because that is going to be superb. Right. On to Thursday evening, 7.30, 65th anniversary uh, celebration of A Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, you mean? Um, yes, It's a Wonderful Life, yes. you're right. Um, yeah, you know, there's not much more to say about it. It is widely considered to be one of the greatest Christmas films of all time. Possibly a career best performance by Jimmy Stewart, although personally I think he's better in um, Vertigo, but that's just me. Um, yeah, it's Frank Capra's best film. Uh, cheery without being overly, uh, overly sentimental, despite its reputation. And then Friday evening at 8 o'clock, The Ref. Um... The Ref is a, is a documentary about um, abuse towards refereeing, which I don't know very much about, but from the trailers it does look interesting. So I don't have much information on it, but it sounds pretty good. Oh, right. It's not what it says on the screen here. Oh, I'm confusing <laughs> it with something else. I beg your pardon, because there was a film called The Ref which came out just last year. Uh, in that case, That's what happens when we don't rehearse. <laughs> <laughs> it says here, the funniest Christmas movie for adults ever, with Dennis Leary. Kevin Spacey. Right. <laughs> In that case, I've got no idea, but no... Shall we expunge that bit from the podcast and start again? <laughs> I think we'll start again, but, uh, yeah, no. That's me testing Daniel's encyclopedic. Yeah, knowledge. I've only just got up, sorry. Yes. Sorry, sorry. So the Mortings box office number is 01289 330999. Uh, in case you're wondering what the ref is about, I'd better give you the, uh, the website, yes, really. www.mortingsberwick.co.uk <laughs> Well, you know, there have to be some films I haven't heard of. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, it's... Uh, you found the weak spot in my armour. It, it was the hysterically funny bit when you said it was a documentary, wasn't it? <laughs> this could be quite a documentary to go see, really. Yeah, Dennis Leary, yes. Mm. yes. Right. Anyway, moving on. Back to serious yes. mode. On to the, uh, on to the top ten now. Yes. Um, where's my... Where's my little thing gone? Here we are. Yes. Uh, number ten is Another Earth. Which, now, I'm glad to see that it's in the top ten, considering it's a sort of independently spirited vehicle. It's an interesting little science fiction film. In the end, it is Melancholia Light, which is quite hard to pull off. I mean, it doesn't have 
no pun intended, the gravity of Lars von Trier's work, which is about a planet colliding with Earth and that representing Kirsten Dunst's depression. Some people might find it a bit too kooky for its own good, but as Sundance offerings go, it is quite well put together and there is a good idea at the heart of it, which is what good science fiction is all about. Right, before we talk about the number nine, Phil, homage to the original again. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. You've got a real thing about the thing, haven't you? Yes. I love that trailer. And I love the film, yes. so that's fine. Yeah, but not this version. No, um, because we're talking about the remake. Well, the remake masquerading as a prequel, which is absolute rubbish. It's effectively the same story as the John Carpenter version with the special effects updated and all the substance taken out. You know, I'm getting quite cross actually thinking about it, but that might be just because I love the 82 version so much. Right, number eight, one that we were talking about last week, A Very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Which is, you know, a stoner comedy that does what it says on the tin. And, no, no, if you don't like stoner comedies, you won't enjoy it. But if you like the idea of two guys kind of worrying around going, for 90 minutes, then it's fine. I like the fact that it, you know, even though the 3D isn't necessary in general, they have at least done the sort of gimmicky Flesh for Frankenstein take on 3D where they, they deliberately draw your attention to it. You know, as lads night out viewing, uh, or not, maybe after a curry, it's perfectly decent. And number seven, a bit of a who's who this one, Kenneth Branagh, Judy Dench, Michelle Williams, My Week with Marilyn. Which is pretty good fluff. I mean, no, it's, it's a costume drama full of famous people playing famous people, and Kenneth Branagh is, he's at a point in his career when, you no, know, after doing all those fantastic Shakespeare adaptations, including his four-hour version of Hamlet, um, the fact that he can now sort of kick back and enjoy himself a bit, because after directing Thor, he's been in this, and no, he's clearly loving playing Laurence Olivier and sending himself up a bit in the process. So, so long as you don't take it too seriously, I think it's really good fun. Right. Number six, um, the audience loves it, critics definitely don't. Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn, part no, one. I think it's flawed. I think that, no... There's a wide consensus that Eclipse is the best of the Twilight films. For me, I wanted more sort of Cronenbergian body horror. I don't think they handled that sort of thing very well. But it is good to see a film with a female protagonist which is hitting its target audience and taking money. Regardless of whether or not you think the film itself is good, you have to admit that the notion of that is good. And number five, onto the Christmas animations now, and Happy Feet 2. <laughs> totally innocuous. I wish George Miller would get back to something a little bit edgier and lower budget. No, the musical numbers are a bit toe-curling, and it's all over the place, so only if you've got nothing else to do. Some great voiceovers. Brad Pitt, Robin Williams, yes, but it's, it's, Matt Damon. Yes, but it's in that voiceover way of turning up and saying, I'm Matt Damon, who just happens to be playing a thing. And I bear in mind, of course, I love yes. Matt Damon. But he so. has made 95 films this year. He's sort of <laughs> he has been sort he of has to have one. pillar to post. Yeah, one <laughs> of them has to be bad and yeah this is it uh number four it is hugo scorsese returning to form after a period of you now uncertainty after the departed where he he'd almost forgotten what he was doing that didn't mean that his films in that period were bad because i do like shutter island quite a lot um i really like in the, all the touches in it about the mechanics and the origins of early cinema and there but there is a real sense of childlike wonder that you don't get with something like Cinema Paradiso, which I've always thought was a bit stilted and staged. So I think it's it's him returning to form. I don't necessarily think you need to see it in 3D, but um, this is one of those where you can go either way. And another one of who's who, isn't it? Uh, ben Kingsley, Sa Sasha Baron. Sir Ben Kingsley. Sir Ben Kingsley. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, mm -hmm. Ray Winston. Christopher Lee. Yes. What, what could you want? And Chloe Moretz, of course, who is uh, a fantastic young actress. So that's, uh, that sounds uh, good fun. Mm -hmm. uh, critics don't like this next one. New Year's Eve at number three. Oh, it's wretched. Uh, just an absolute vomit cake of a film. I mean, it, it's the reason it's taking money is because it's got the unsinkable cast list, and there are people out there who will pay to see any film with Robert De Niro or Halle Berry in, and I sort of understand that, but it is just watching a load of famous people basically earning the rent. It's the the plot is all over the place. It's terribly directed by Gary Marshall. And you no, know, you think back to you no, know, this is the guy who what nineteen, no, so twenty one years ago made Pretty Woman, which was actually pretty decent. So my advice is save yourself the trouble, go and write that instead. Back to the animations at number two, and it's Arthur Christmas. No, I, I, I this is warming. To, I'm warming to this a little bit more than I did a few weeks ago. I don't think it's first-rate art, but I think that it doesn't have the staying 
English charm of something like Curse of the Were-Rabbit or indeed The Wrong Trousers, which I dare say will be on television this year because they're always on television, and rightly so. So yeah, it's fine. I'm sure it's hitting its target audience with the younger people, so no. I've no problem with people going to see it. And some other good voiceovers. Bill Nighy, Hugh Laurie, Imelda Staunton. Yes, indeed. Yes. No, it's, that's, that's an it's, example of using its cast properly. A so. lady who can do no wrong in my mind. Imelda Staunton. Yes. yes. Have you seen Vera Drake? Yes. 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 She is astounding in that film. Yeah, great. And, uh, and some slightly, uh, yeah, less, slightly less traumatic films she's done. Yes, and, and, and of course Order of the Phoenix, which is yes. her big sort of, uh, scenery change performance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, she enjoyed that. I remember they're interviewing her on one of the breakfast shows, uh, just before that released, and she said how much fun she'd, she'd had being able to do some somebody so gloriously wicked and evil. Yeah, I remember, um, cause, uh, connection with Michael Gambon. Yeah. Michael Gambon going on, I think it was Top Gear, and being interviewed about doing all the press junkets for films, you know, when you sit in the same place and then different journalists come through. Yeah. And he was saying how diff how actors set themselves little tasks to wind up the journalists. And on Sleepy Hollow, Johnny Depp set him the challenge of getting the phrase Claudia Schiffer's knickers into every answer that he gave. <laughs> and he managed it. <laughs> Had to be quite severely edited, yes. but he did it. That sounds great, <laughs> doesn't it? And at number one, straight in at number one, film I'm, I think I want to go and see, Puss in Boots. Yeah, no, I I think it's pretty decent. I, I think it's certainly better than the third and fourth Shrek films, if nothing else, because it's at least being concerned with being funny rather than just being arch. No, the story is a bit all over the place, but Antonio Banderas, again, is clearly enjoying himself. Um, we need to see more of Selma Hayek, because she's surprisingly good. Um, I think you should see it in 2D, but you will enjoy yourself. Yes, and of course, uh, for Shrek fans, Strictly Come Dancing final tonight, the infamous Shrek dance. Do you the do Strictly Come Dancing? No. No. Yeah, what's the Shrek dance? It's a jive. To, it was done um, with Shrek costumes on and the big ears. Oh, is, is it anything to do with the um, the ending of the first film when they when they dance? No, I'm a believer. Just a dive. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, it could have been I'm a believer. I think it was actually. All right. I might be persuaded to check it out, but no promises. <laughs> um, not your not your program then. No. no. Um, so we'd give our recommendations. Why not, indeed? Uh, okay, well, uh, Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots, definitely. Hugo, absolutely. Um, the Twilight Saga, if you've got young girls, and uh, My Week with Marilyn, if you want just a, a light-hearted, frothy romp. And if you fancy the trip up to Berwick, well, anything they've got on, really, it's going to yeah, be a good week. But there. particularly Strictly Ballroom, because if, if you love Moulin Rouge, that's, that sort of explains where Lerman cut his teeth, so you need to see it. Christmas films before that. Some Christmas music. I don't think this one made it to a film. Is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Boney M and Mary's Butcher. One of my favourite Christmas songs of all time. Yeah. Something like that. It's been a, quite a few years since I've heard that. It's surprisingly good. It is. We were talking about My Week at Marilyn, uh, which of course is number seven in the charts at the moment, and on the subject of Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, because we were talking, Kenneth Branagh plays Laurence Olivier in that uh, role, and it reminded me of um, the Blackadder New Year's Eve special, I think it was, called Back and Forth, which they did at the end of the 90s. And... Uh, there's a sequence in that where Rowan Atkinson playing Blackadder goes back to Elizabethan times and bumps into William Shakespeare in the corridor and starts beating him up for sort of traumatising, yeah. you know, making boys wearing tights for 400 years. And then he finishes off with you know, a massive kick in the, uh, in the stomach and says, that is for Kenneth Branagh's uncut four-hour version of Hamlet. And Shakespeare looks up at him in pain and goes, who is Kenneth Branagh? I'll tell him you said that, and I don't think he'll be very pleased. <laughs> well, I'm just looking at the Internet Movie uh, database at the moment, and they have little plot uh, keywords for uh, for our various films that we have in our cult classics. And mm -hmm. I'll just pick up this week's because it's the most um, interesting interesting selection you could go for: Lancashire, Wife Murderer, Farm. Jesus Christ. Yes. Now try and plot that one together. <laughs> and on top of that, this could be a world first, a youth certificate cult classic from Daniel Mumby. Not exactly a world first, because I think last year Paul and I did the Muppet Christmas Carol, although that might be a PG. But <laughs> no, I've got no problem with youth certificate films, so let's dive straight in. Um, Whistle Down the Wind, which is our cult Christmas film from 1961, a black and white drama based on the novel by Mary Haley Bell. 
directed by Brian Forbes, who is one of those names that keeps cropping up in the history of British cinema, and deservedly so, because he is a very important figure. He had quite a successful career as a director. Other than this, he's most famous for doing the original version of The Stepford Wives, yeah. uh, which is based on the novel by Ira Levin. We touched on that briefly when we talked about The Boys from Brazil, all those many months ago, so check the back podcast for that. Um, but he also he had many um, sort of ventures into the medium. He did a film called The L-Shaped Room, which was a, a film in the British New Wave about a, a French lady who comes to live in a, a bedsit in Britain and falls yeah. in love with one of the tenants. Very good film. Uh, he did Seance on a Wet Afternoon with Richard Attenborough, who was a producing partner of his, and that's a psychological thriller about... Um, fake psychic and his and her husband who kidnap a young girl and it all goes horribly wrong and he also did a very interesting edwardian style comedy called the wrong box where michael kane plays one of two brothers who enter into a ton team which is an agreement whereby you know the last person alive gets the goods yeah and it's a sort of comedy because you no know, the wrong person gets buried and so forth that's a bit you no know, it's interesting in places so aside from his directing career i mean he was a very good screenwriter because he won the bafta for best original screenplay for the angry silence which is what started his working relationship with Richard Attenborough and later on in his career he would write the screenplay for Richard Attenborough's Chaplin which earned Robert Downey Jr. his first Oscar nomination. We'll yeah. come to Robert Downey Jr. later with the Sherlock Holmes sequel. Other than that, no, <laughs> Forbes does crop up. He was in, um, do you remember the second Pink Panther film, A Shot in the Dark? You know, when they yes, go in, when yes. Cluzo uh, goes into the nudist colony to looking for the, for the, the girl that he's in love with. Yeah. And he's greeted by a guy with nothing except a guitar on. That's actually Brian Forbes. But, oh, right. but in the credits, yeah. he is credited as Turk Thrust, I think, because he didn't want his <laughs> name. <laughs> a sort of in joke on that. So he was a bit part actor. You'd probably be most aware of him as his producer because, of course, his name comes up at the end of the railway children in that sequence where they're moving along the track. Oh, yes. Because yeah. he was uh, an executive for EMI when that production was yeah. sort of floundering a bit and he basically said here's the money to finish it so if you listen very carefully to the last scene of the railway children as it moves in on jenny agatha with the blackboard you can hear coming saying thanks brian and <laughs> <laughs> that's so right and i think at the moment he's currently serving as president of the national youth theater of great britain so yeah. someone who has a lot invested in british cinema yeah. and loves the medium Indeed. and has produced a whole series of interesting films of which this is his first and best Made for a very low budget. I can't, um, I couldn't find out exactly how much, but it was very, very low. And it was a sleeper hit. It sort of hung around for two or three months before going on the rep circuit. It's widely talked about if you're f among sort of fans of Kez and Kathy Come Home and uh, all the works of Ken yeah. Loach. But outside of that circle, it's not that widely known. It was later turned into a far inferior musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which was premiered in 96, I think, and gave us the song uh, No Matter What, which was then a hit for Boyzone, if you remember that far I back. I remember it. Well, I went to see the show. Was it any good? I got the stage CD of it. It's mm. very good, actually. It's nice music, nicely okay. written. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. The boys' own one was okay. Yes. I think that's that was my experience of it. But, uh, but suffice to say, the musical's pretty good, but the film is extraordinary. Yeah. And I, no, I will hold up my hands and say this. Now, this is my favourite Christmas film. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing it. So the plot is, um, it's set in and around a, a farm on the Lancashire Moors in the early 60s. And it follows the three Bostock children. Cathy, uh, played by Hayley Mills, who is actually the... Uh, the daughter of the author, Mary Haley Bell, uh, Nan, played by Diane Holgate, and Charles, played by Alan Barnes. And they live on a farm with their widower father, played by Bernard Lee, who most people would know as M from the Roger Moore Bond films. I think he also turns up in the, the Timothy Dalton ones as well, but no, big screen presence. And their uh, auntie Dorothy, who has effectively henpecked him, and she's played by Elsie uh, uh, Wagstaff. One day the children come home from Sunday school, um, sort of having conversations about Jesus and the Bible and the second coming and whether or not they believe in that and they find they walk into a barn where they find an escaped convict called blakey Ooh. played by alan bates with a massive sort of you know unshaven alan bates and they believe as a result of a sort of contrivance in the conversation that he is actually the second coming of jesus christ because i think the way it works is that they're talking about no actually i don't believe that the bible's true yeah. then he sits up out of the hay and and uh, hayley bell says who are you and he goes jesus christ and faints <laughs> And because, no, it, well, the way I describe it, it sounds rather odd, but when you actually see the film, it doesn't sound anything like as contrived. And the film then plays out with various key events of Jesus' life being reenacted through allegory and contrasts the innocent belief of the children in the village with yeah. the cynicism of the adults who are... It's not, it's just actually not quite as fatuous as it sounds, because obviously Christmas is the starting point of that. Which so. I heard a lovely uh, phrase about it uh, last week, which was, without Christmas there'd be no Easter, and without Easter there'd be no point in having Christmas. 
I really like that. I'm yeah, gonna I like make. This. I'll make a note of that. I'll, I'll put it in my le the few Christmas cards that I've got to send. Um, so, Whistle Down the Wind is the best Christmas film because it actually understands that this is the case. But more to the point, it handles the subject in a way which is engaging, which is mature, and which is interest or populist. It's not like all the sort of the straight-to-TV Christmas films that you'd often get in America where it is just hammering that point home so much that nobody who has, a, you know, has even a slightest bit of doubt will care. It's a heartbreaking but also very funny comic allegory which takes one of history's most spectacular events and retells it in the most bittersweet of circumstances and it's a fantastic commentary on the innocence of childhood, on the nature of faith and the, the way in which the process of becoming an adult actually makes you lose some of the ability to see the world in a different way. I mean, it's like yeah. the, the, um, the studies that have shown, you know, that the babies are, are more susceptible to absorbing huge amounts of knowledge than actually adults are, despite the fact that we consider ourselves so mature and so yeah. refined. Um, I think in terms of an allegory, it's up there with things like the, the best works of C.S. Lewis and The Green Mile, which is very high praise for me, because I think The Green Mile is an astonishing piece of work. So, first off, it's a remarkable that a film about some of the most complex aspects of Christian theology should be welcoming to the casual viewer. Yeah. I mean, the treatment of the biblical subject matter is neither bald nor manipulative in the sense that it raises all the important questions about you know, how the second coming would work and the place of suffering, but it doesn't feel the need to provide us with easy answers for the sake of tugging on our heartstrings. Yeah. I mean, if this had been made by somebody like... Well, it's an, it's an odd comparison, but if this had been made by somebody like Steven Spielberg, he would have felt the need at the end to sort of tie everything up in a little bow and sort of present it. <laughs> yeah. That's not necessarily an indictment to Spielberg, because, you no, know, sentimental popcorn stuff is what he does best, but you have to choose your subject matter very carefully if that's what you're going to do, and that's where when Spielberg does things like Saving Private Ryan, he does get a bit bogged down. In this, every single shred of emotion that you have for Kathy, for Blakey, and for all the other characters, particularly all the children, is completely genuine. And as it builds to that breathless final scene, you are completely in the shoes of the central character, both in terms of the belief you have in the nature of Blakey and in just the heartache with what happens to him. We'll, we'll come on to that in just a second. I said at the start that Forbes is best known for his involvement with the railway children on a production yeah. level, and I know how much you love the railway children. I do, yes. Which I, the I first did. one, yes. Yes, not the one in which Jenny Agatha turns up yes. as the adult, which yes. is a bit... A bit too broody. Yes, a <laughs> bit too broody. <laughs> but yeah, I do love the railway children as well, but although... There is this, I mean, there is a comparison in the sense that there's the same central dynamic of two girls and a young boy. Yeah. And the idea of children being the proactive and the optimistic ones in the community, because, of course, in the railway children, uh, it's Roberta and the other two children. What's the name of the other two children in the railway? It's Roberta, Phyllis, and is it Peter? It's the Peter, name of the yes. Yes. Yeah. They're the ones actually wanting to get involved with the railway yeah. station and save the boy from the paper chase yeah. and actually try and get their father back, whereas their yeah. mother is, you know, just kind of goes off and writes a bit and yes. then sort of rejoices when he comes back um so in this case you know there is a through line with that you could also argue that there is a sort of freudian through line in the sense that both roberta and um kathy are essentially looking for a father figure in the sense that you know it's in um in the case of you know, Roberta, it's actually looking for her long-lost father, and in one version that means she, yeah. she writes to the Rich Attenborough character with that famous, Dear Mr. We Do Not Know Your Name letter. <laughs> um, but in this case, you have you know, Blakey standing in for the father figure that Bernard Lee can't be because yeah. he's distant and you know, beats his children and, is, you know, and hates life in general, whereas Blakey actually seems to have, well, not just a, a literally ethereal quality and actually can bond with her. But whereas the railway children is essentially sort of light, airy and carefree, which is again not a criticism because I think it's really good at doing that, Whistle Down the Wind is a part of that British new wave, so it's it's strict and it's repressive and it's it's cold, not in the sense that it's difficult to get into, but it's unforgiving in the yeah. way that it depicts the landscape. It's shot by Arthur Ibbotson, who also shot the railway children, so a complete contrast. And in his hands, Lancashire becomes this sort of brooding I mean, it's a lazy thing to say if it's in black and white, it's Bergman-esque, but there is that same sense of... Do you remember the ending of The Seventh Seal, uh, The Dance of Death, when there's these figures wandering over the hillside as they go off to, to face the Grim Reaper? No. No, <laughs> there's a famous yeah. sequence at the end of The Seventh Seal called The Dance of Death yeah. when they're kind of going over the hillside and you know, talking about existentialism. You know, I, yeah. When I first saw it, I didn't really get it, but now, yeah. I, now it's a great scene. And there's a similar uh, scene to that at the beginning of Whistle Down the Wind when they're walking up the, the steeper parts of the Lancashire Moors and the music comes in, it, yeah. it just, you have the sense of, of characters completely isolated and completely yeah. barren and unforgiving landscape and you just feel that something is going to happen. 
it makes it very clear very early on that, no, this is a biblical allegory, um, reinterpreting several key passages from the Gospels in a way which, no, does justice to all the stuff in Matthew, Mark, yeah. Luke and John, but in a way which is populist and in a way slightly tongue-in-cheek i mean the the um the soundtrack does riff on the carol we three kings of orient are which yeah. you could sort of argue isn't really christian because carols have a a paganistic origin but no it's been absorbed into our notion of christmas and there's a sequence early on where all the children from the village have been told by kathy about no this great secret come and see you know come and see Jesus, basically, in the barn. And so you have, um, effectively a reenactment of the nativity because you have, <laughs> yeah. the, have the children coming in as, you know, you know Kathy and her you know, brother and sister as the shepherds being the first person who found yeah. him, and then all the others as the wise men. But instead of giving gold, frankincense and myrrh, you have an Arabian charm bracelet and a free comic. <laughs> and then it goes, and then uh, it gets the free comic, yeah. and one of the children says, well, can you tell us a story? So he starts reading from the comic, and that's, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, and it yeah. turns into that. So that's an example. It's playful, but yeah. it also has the substance going through it, and you feel like it's being treated very well. That sort of you know, symbolism is present all through the film, right up to the end, where... Um, Alan Bates is being led off by the police, having been yeah. sort of, you know, brumbled for the convict that he is. And when he's being searched, he holds his arms up as if <laughs> yeah. on the cross. And, it, yes. you know, it cuts to um, Hayley Mills just bursting into tears because, you know, yeah. the Sunday school, she knew exactly what's going to happen. Yes. And there's that wonderful yeah. line at the end of the film where one of the other children who didn't get involved in the past comes to the village and says, no, come to see Jesus, is he here? He said, you've missed him, but he will be back. <laughs> and no, yes, but it, so again, yes. it, it's that sense of, you know, there's weight, but there's also yeah. playfulness and you know what you're doing with it. The central message of Whistle Down the Wind lies in the middle of Matthew's Gospel, which is, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the Kingdom of Heaven. It's not, a, you know, in contrast to so many mainstream Christmas films which show, view children as something innately gullible or stupid or easily manipulated. If anything, the children in Whistle Down the Wind are completely the opposite because they possess a large amount of common sense, they can think for themselves. I mean, the reasoning and the belief may be structured around something which we as an audience know to be untrue in the sense that we know that Blakey isn't really Jesus Christ, yes. but it doesn't portray their faith in Blakey as in some way stupid or irrational. I mean, it's the kind of thing that Richard Dawkins would absolutely loathe yeah. because it does portray the positive aspects of faith and doesn't question the mechanics of it. And it's, it's actually quite interesting that we should be talking about this in the week that uh, Christopher Hitchens died. Yeah. Because, of course, he wrote a lot of treatises about uh, how corrupting faith is. But actually, it's a very rounded and open-minded treatment of the notion of faith in the sense that it doesn't just show it as unconditionally good because, yeah. you know, the Hayley, uh, Hayley Mills character suffers as a result of her belief. But also it points out that actually, compared to what happens to the adults in the film, it can be a very... Pro um, yeah. Good positive thing. So, in contrast to the children's openness and their willingness to accept this, even if we know that what they're accepting isn't actually true, yeah. the adults in the film are reluctant to talk about religion or indeed any moral issues that are outside their own interest. The film does touch on a number of Christian organizations like the church, like Sunday school, like the Salvation Army at the beginning, but all the scenes directly involving these see the adults skirting all the difficult issues and dodging the difficult questions. There's a sequence where Kathy meets the local vicar in a cafe and not only can he not remember her name exactly, it's like the thing you know, in yeah. Carrie where he calls her Cassie instead yeah. all the time and that's where she gets really annoyed. But um, she asks him all the sort of difficult questions about, you know, um, how would we recognise God if he came back and he sort of skirts and said, well, what I really want to talk about is the person who stole all my guttering. It's just <laughs> completely unacceptable. All that lead off the church is yeah. going to cost us hundreds of pounds. So, you know, you get the church putting out an irrelevant sermon rather than actually answering yeah. the spiritual questions that people have. And there's another sequence, which is a very British New Wave sequence of where the oldest child out of uh, the school, who's, uh, you know, a bit of a bully and is like a foot taller than all the others, comes up to Hayley Mills and uh, sort of asks, uh, uh, you know, who is this guy? And she says, Jesus, and he slaps her. And the idea is that, you no, know, he's already on the, the path to adulthood. He's too far gone. His yeah. mind has already gone to the world yeah. basically and the film puts across this and a very similar idea to um the central conceit of being there you no know, the peter sellers film from the late 70s for which he was oscar nominated i think um which is you no know, if jesus came back to earth 
the chances are you wouldn't recognize him. And this is a world which clings on to religion and traditional order, but in doing so has turned its back on the childlike nature of faith. So, you know, you have the idea of you know, a church which exists, but it's kind of forgotten what it's yeah. doing. And the adults in the film, like I say, are so wrapped up in their own convictions, traditions. I mean, in the case of Bernard Lee, it's, no, I have to maintain a strong house. I'm the head of the household, yeah. even though I'm secretly in the pocket of, no, your aunt. But I won't say that out loud. Um, that I can't accept for a single second that what you're saying might even be true because that's just a threat to my authority. I think the difference between the two is that whereas being there both celebrates and satirizes that content of faith because you have the idea of, you know, the chancy, chancy gardener inveigling his way into being an advisor of the president and there'll be growth in the spring. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> so, no, yeah. that's, no, and there's some debate about you know, whether being there is a Christian film or whether it's a humanist film which is satirizing Christianity. Yeah. I think it's somewhere between the two. Whereas Whistle Down the Wind, it's much more celebratory of the concept of faith in and of itself, at least in terms of, you no know, an alternative to human cynicism and self-interestedness. So you have you know, a number of very meaty subjects which are very well handled by a subtle script which revels in the earthiness of the dialogue. I mean, in, com in contrast to something like the sort of caricatured version of the, of the British working class that you often get in sort of 30s and 40s literature, this doesn't feel like a pretend version of Lancashire that has been yeah. set up on a London set and people are sort of talking in comedy accents and <laughs> that sort of yeah. thing. And Brian Forbes' direction is, I mean, one of the reasons I think he's very well known as a director is that he's incredibly unfussy. I mean, if you've seen The Setford Wives, that is a film which very much lets the horror speak for itself and there's no, there's no real directorial stamp, but that's one of the reasons it works. And you shoot, he has him shooting the most key moments in terms of structure in the most understated way so the dialogue speaks for itself. There's a wonderful moment where um, about halfway through the film, Charles, the young boy played by Alan Barnes, his cat has, uh, has passed away, unfortunately, and he and Kathy go off to um, a lake uh, on one of the moors to have a sort of discussion about you know, death and suffering yeah. and why he had to die. But rather than shoot it in that sort of confrontational way of, I don't believe in this guy anymore, how could you let this happen? He shoots it with the two of them sitting with their backs to the camera just throwing pebbles into the lake. So it's treating these huge questions on a par with anything as frivolous yeah. as you know, that sort of childlike activity, yeah. which is a very intelligent and warming way to do it. And, no, I mean, I'm, some of the way I'm describing this might make it out to think it's a bleak film. And while the surrounding is bleak, one of the things I love about Whistle Down the Wind is the fact that it's actually very funny. And some of the initial comedy derives from the warm, sort of brutal honesty of children. You know that thing about, you know, you tell children not to say something and that's yeah. exactly the thing that they'll say. And in an early sequence, um, Kathy expresses doubts about the Bible being true and Charles spits out the line, just you wait till Jesus comes and gets you. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> yeah. and then they go into the barn and yeah. there he is. Uh, and later on... On, there's um, a sequence and uh, his sister remarks that no, well, he's Jesus, he can do anything. So, well, can he give me a chocolate cake for my birthday, which is coming <laughs> up next week? So there's that sort of yeah. childlikeness. Gradually, the film does become more pathos-ridden. So you get, you go from the sort of oh, isn't that charming? It's a young boys that are talking about chocolate cake to um, I suppose the territory of Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, where you have the young Jackie Gleason and him, and it's the idea you know, that the kid's going to be taken away, and it, it's pathos-ridden in the way that yeah. all of Chaplin's best work is, and. You know, there's a wonderful moment in it when they're playing blind man's buff at the birthday party and Charles bumps into his father and, father and says, I think I've found Jesus. And, Who did you say you found? And there's a sort of awkward pause. Yeah. And Charles goes, oh, he's not Jesus. He's just a fella. And that's that you know, heartbreaking yeah. little moment. The performances are absolutely superb. Um, Bernard Lee, who, like I say, is most famous for playing M in the James Bond series, he's very compelling as a father who... Because you know those sequences in towards the end of the Bond films, particularly something like um, The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, when they find Bond with the girl and he's yes, got that sort of yeah. raspable, oh, James. That's <laughs> it's, it's exactly that sort of performance yeah. where I've got to maintain authority, I'm in charge, but actually there's people undercutting yeah. me all the time. Um, I think Alan Bates is... This is on a par with his working women in love. I mean, he he does that sort of dishevelled look very well. Yeah. But in this, it, it's just raw charisma, and it's that in the same way that Rutger Hauer, he's got that way of being incredibly attractive, but also very threatening. Yeah. But by far and away the best performance is Hayley Mills, who you no, know, I think is most famous otherwise for playing the twins in the original version of The Parent Trap from the sixties before Lindsay Lohan got involved. Yeah. And in many ways, she was the Miley Cyrus of her day in the sense that she was a Disney poster child. She was under contract yeah, to Disney for yes, four or five yeah. years and had yeah. had a couple of pop hits actually. The story there is a, a story that she was considered for the title role in 
Stanley Kubrick's Lita, but the Disney executives overruled because they thought it would uh, undermine their wholesome image. <laughs> I think mean, Vladimir yeah. Nabokov with Haley Mills. But no, it's an, it's an incredibly naturalistic performance, yeah. and it's wisdom beyond her years, but like all the best wisdom beyond the years performances, you don't feel like she's an adult pretending to be a child. So to sum up, I think it's an absolutely magnificent piece of British filmmaking with you no know, strong performances and even stronger script. It's profound but also incredibly populist. The dialogue is intelligent. It's up there with the Green Mile as a Christian allegory because it actually you know gets into the meat of what Christmas is about, but also lets you have some fun. Yeah. And if you've got young children in particular who haven't seen it, it it's a fantastic way of just you know introducing them to the story of Jesus. And it's a film which you no. Know, I think reminds us about how important it is to have you no know, faith yeah. in a childlike manner, and so I think it's an extraordinary film. It's a film to go watch. Yes, Richard and Daniel, with you this Saturday morning with the movie hour and a half. Yes, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, it? it is. It is yes. very nice. So next week we're doing review of the year. Yeah, there's no cult film next week because uh, we'll only have an hour, unfortunately, yeah. um, when we will be going through the best and the not so best of uh, 2011. Uh, so I'll be giving my top ten films of the year. We'll do the new releases for yeah. Boxing Day and yes. um, just sum up. We might. Now, if Richard lets me, we might play the Transformers 3 round just one more time. Yes, because it was a great one. It really was. Right. So we thought we'd have a, our own uh, top five uh, Christmas films. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing some research, which I rarely do for this show. I was so. about to make that joke. But <laughs> well, considering I didn't yes. know what the ref was, I yes. think we're all even yes. now. So uh, I'm just going to start with um, uh, Scrooge, uh, 1951 version. Uh, many, many versions of this have been done on film and TV. TV and some of them are absolutely atrocious, but this one's yes. great. Mm -hmm. Alistair Sim, who mm. can do no wrong, him of St. Trinian's fame. Yes, of course. And uh, here's some names for you. George Cole, when he was young. Um, Jack Warner. Yes. Remember him from yes. Dixon of Doc Green. Yes, uh, I do. Patrick McNee, who went on to do The Avengers. Yes, uh, not to be confused with Patrick McGee, of course. Yes. who was Great, you know. uh, great film. Wonderfully told story of uh, Christmas Carol. And uh, I don't think it's been equaled since. Yeah, I think it, it's not. I like Alistair Sim very much. I mean, I've banged on uh, for a while on this slot about a film called The Millionaires, which I think is one of the worst of the 60s. But he is the very best thing in that film. And I think I read something somewhere saying that Alistair Sim was... He was the great tragic clown of the 50s because he had that sort of miserableist face, yes. but that makes him absolutely perfect for Scrooge. Yeah, I do yeah. think the 50s version is very good. Um, we'll come on to another Scroogeish choice uh, when we do my uh, top five because I've you no know, chosen the Muppets. But I do think, yeah, it's a really good choice. Interestingly released in the States as a Christmas Carol. Hmm, yeah. I, I wonder why they would have had to change that. Very odd. No, considering that this is the country that gave us Scrooge. Yes, only, indeed. Only 25 years yes. later. Which possibly won't go into the classics of all time. Right, you're, yes. you're not a fan of Scrooge. No, I'm not. Really? Yeah, go on. Bill Murray? That's your number okay. five. Okay. Well, my number five is Brazil, um, the Terry Gilliam film. I've sort of done these in no particular order, so um, yeah. we'll just you know, go through them as and when. I mean, bear in mind, of course, that the number one would be Whistle Down the Wind, but since yeah. we've already done that. Um, Brazil, Terry Gilliam's best film from 1985, um, set in a dystopian future in which you know, John Jonathan Price, in his finest performance, plays uh, Sam uh, Riley, who is a, no, a, a bureaucrat who, is look, who has these fantastic dreams about escaping to a fantasy world of, with a beautiful woman he admires. It's a Christmas film because it has a Christmas setting, and there's a sequence at the, uh, at the beginning of it where um, the Ministry for Information Retrieval accidentally go after the wrong person because of a typing error. There's this terrorist that they're hunting called Harvey Tuttle, played by, um, Harry Tuttle, played by Robert De Niro. But, uh, because of, like, a, um, a blue bottle dropping on the, the printer, it becomes Buttle. Yeah. So they break it, so it, it cuts to the Buttle household where, um, there's you know, a Christmas tree with presents underneath it and the, the young girl, the daughter of the family goes, no, but daddy, we don't have a Christmas tree. How will Santa come down? And at that very moment, a hole is drawn in the ceiling and bang the special forces come down <laughs> and arrest him and the rest of the yeah. film is about what happens to him so it's a christmas film in the sense that it shows how those sort of again in the way that whistle down the windows those notions of childlike no and this have yeah. been eroded by commercialism and state totalitarianism but it's really good fun yeah my next one um 1995 i didn't realize it was that many years ago it shows how rarely i go to the cinema uh, while you were sleeping 
um, sort of a rom-com, really, mm -hmm. but uh, a great one in my uh, in my books with the, uh, the lovely Sandra Brook, another person who can do no wrong in my eyes. That's more controversial. I like While You Were Sleeping quite a lot, yes. and Sandra Bullock is one of those people who, when she's good, she's pretty good, but when she's bad, she's, oh, yeah. please. I just said, and see the bad ones, obviously. <laughs> yes, because you're saying, yes. <laughs> so... Very brief, um, very brief uh, story. Um, lonely transit worker saves a man on Christmas Day. Yes. Takes him to the hospital. Uh, somehow ends up claiming that she's his fiance, spending the holidays with his family uh, while he lies in a coma. That's a very quick story of it. It's a very, yeah, and I like yes. I said, I remember seeing this on, I think it was late night TV ages and ages ago, and going in thinking, okay, what's this? And actually really being charmed by it. So, yes. again, a very good choice. Yes. And uh, they end up falling in love and living happily out. Here's a question for you. I mean, we should, we should sort of be bearing in mind with all of these films. When about in the Christmas period should you be watching these? Because there are some films that you can't watch after Christmas Day. No, this, uh, this one, I think, Christmas is incidental to the, uh, yes. the plot. You could watch it any time. Okay. So, uh, yes, good film. Mm -hmm. My second choice is um, the most obvious one, but it's the one we have to mention. It's Die Hard, because it is, it's in many ways the quintessential alternative Christmas film. Yeah, alternative being the word. <laughs> yes, because, you know, it's you know, proof that Christmas films don't have to be about sort of massive group hugs and, and mawkish sentimentality. They can be about lunatic terrorists taking over a tar block. Yeah. You know, it's the definitive Bruce Willis <coughs> in a vest performance, which, you know, considering they're now making a fifth Die Hard film, you know, after all these years, Bruce still knows who his target audience is. It's no, in also the definitive Alan Rickman pantomime voice. I and mean, there was a fantastic story about um, the thing I was saying earlier about you no know, children say the things that they're not meant to say. And uh, I think it was Hugh Grant took his young nephew to a film party where where Alan Rickman was in attendance, and he said, "Just no, don't mention about playing villains. Don't mention." For me. And he went straight up and just said, "Alan, why do you always play villains?" <laughs> and Alan Rickman said. I don't play villains. I play interesting people. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Yes. So, yeah, I think it's really good. Again, it's very good fun. And also John McTiernan, who is an, an action director who often gets sort of pushed under the carpet, but he is very underrated. And, no, both the Die Hard films that he directed and his subsequent work with... Um, because he also did Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is the best sort of Pirandello action film I've seen. So, yeah. good, very good to recommend it. Funny you should mention uh, Alan Rickman, because he was in the next one I'm going to talk about. Oh, that's been done very nicely. Love Actually, uh, mm -hmm. from 2003. Richard Curtis, written and directed. Yes. So it's going to have to be good, isn't it? Yeah, I think, no. And a bit of a cast list for you here. Hugh Grant, Liam Neeson, Colin Firth, Emma Thompson, Kira Knightley, uh, uh, Bill Nighy. What Rowan was that Atkinson. What was that noise for? Anyway, uh, Do I, you think not... I think she's lovely. Um, <laughs> We'll come back to your Kira Knightley stuff, yeah. Yes, a uh, little bit of a story. Anyway, um, <laughs> a r another romantic comedy. This is probably one you should watch before Christmas, I think, really, because yes. it's the lead-up to uh, to Christmas, following the lives of eight very different couples dealing with their love lives, variously loosely, yes, and interrelated <laughs> tales, all set during the frantic month before Christmas in London. Great film, good fun. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think that, no, I think I said in the past when we talked about Love Actually, that Richard Curtis is a better writer than a director, because I don't think he quite managed to marshal all the stories together in that film. But in yeah. terms, there are individual moments in it which really do work, particularly all the stuff with Emma Thompson going off and having a private cry. Yes. Yeah. So, no, I don't think it's as, I don't think it's quite as good as you make it out to be. You know, I think, you no, know, when they all sort of go to the airport together, yeah. that's a bit of a contrivance. Yes. Yeah. But, no. Maybe it's good fun. Yeah, as, no, when you, no, so Christmas afternoon when you're full of turkey and you don't want to concentrate too much, it does its job perfectly well. It does, yes. Um, my number three choice is another action film, Lethal Weapon, um, which is Richard Donner's, well, probably his most famous film, cause, because we talked about um, Richard Donner a bit in the past couple of weeks when we talked about Superman. Um, no, it's the classic, it's not the first buddy cop film by any means, but it has become the definitive article in the sense, you know, you have Lethal, no, you have Danny Glover as the, um, the black police officer who wants to retire and is getting too old and is very careful. He famous, you know, there's the famous line which we can't say on the air. Yeah. And when they edited it for the trailer, it was, I'm too old for this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you have him, and on the other hand, you have Mel Gibson with the biggest mullet in the world playing, uh, you know, the firebrand who actually, you know, go, doesn't just go by the book, he goes beyond it and he has this thing about being able to dislocate his shoulder to get out yeah. of a straitjacket, although that actually comes in in the second film. Now, again, it's. If you think about it too hard, it doesn't make much sense. But <laughs> if you enjoy it just to, in terms yeah. of the relationship between those two characters, and again, like It's a Wonderful Life, you know, because there is a Christmas setting around the ending of that. Yeah. It's a film which, you know, 
gets a, which actually has a sort of, not a dark center by any means, but a sort of threatening center, because, you know, the, the first scene of the weapon is Mel Gibson holding a gun to his head, and then it sort of goes uphill from there. Yeah. So, yeah. no, and, no, it does fit in with the sort of the, the good, well-wishing spirit of Christmas. I don't think it's Richard Donner's best film, and we'll actually talk about Lady Hawk in the new year, which is really good, but, uh, again, now, a lot of these Christmas films are, are selected purely for the fact that they're fun, and it is about as much fun as you can get. Yeah. This next one is great fun. Uh, Home Alone. Mm -hmm. uh, the film that worked for all the reasons what the sequel didn't. Um, it was a very, very early um, uh, Macaulay Culkin, yes. uh, when he was still innocent, when he was still funny. And sadly, he's one of those actors that uh, did, didn't... Uh, didn't grow up um yes unlike um some other great ones and like jamie, his, jamie bell for instance yes or indeed like his brother kieran culkin <coughs> yeah, who indeed. is scott yeah. pilgrim versus the world but in uh home alone of course the story is uh, he accidentally left behind by the uh, family while they're getting panicky about their christmas holidays and yeah. uh, and he ends up uh, defending the home against all comers it's a brilliant brilliant film yeah i mean it is essentially it's an it's a nice old-fashioned farce and no, yes. i think you know outside it's of goodfellas it's joe pesci's best performance so yeah. I've got no problems with Home Alone, despite my general yeah. reservations about Chris it's Columbus. It's just a shame everything that came after didn't quite... Work. The second one's all right. I mean, no. I, I remember the, set, the moment in the second one when, because um, there's that moment in the first one when Joe Pesci burns his hand on the doorknob, which is in many ways an Indiana Jones reference. Yes. And then in the second one when they come back and he comes sliding down the banister, sees Joe Pesci standing at the bottom, starts screaming, and then Joe Pesci holds up his hand where the doorknob has been burned in, which is, of course, yes. a straightforward reference to the, to the Hail Hitler moment in Raiders yes. of the Lost Ark. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, no, the second one's all right, but after that they've got nowhere to go, and the third and fourth one are absolutely appalling yeah right yours um my fourth one i'm not going to say too much about this because paul young and myself actually covered this last year it's the muppet christmas carol so if you uh, go way way back in the podcast you will find our definitive thing i think that michael kane is the best scrooge uh, as much as i like alistair sim in the 50s version or george c scott's uh, performance in the 70s version which is about as grumpy as you can get and that's saying something considering how grumpy george c scott was in real life um no it's no retelling of the christmas carol with no with muppets it has no Kermit the Frog playing Bob Cratchit and doing a very good job being, no, it's, no, in many ways the thing that Muppets fans are waiting for, because it's Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy getting married and actually having children. Yeah. To which the obvious question is, how did that work? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it, it works because of the fact that the special effects are pretty involving and it, it does justice to the story without over-egging the pudding. But simply because Michael Caine is so damn good at playing Scrooge. I mean, the, yes. I have a wonderful moment. I'll try not to reenact it too much because yes. it's in the podcast. But one of the moments I remember from my childhood very clearly is seeing the bit where the rats go into the office to ask for an extra shovelful of coal for the fire. Saying, oh, yes, it's a frozen. Yeah. And Michael Caine's kind of hunched over the desk. He goes, how would the bookkeeping staff like to be suddenly unemployed? <laughs> that has just stuck with me. I thought, I love this guy, and I'm never going to like him. It's, uh, it's very difficult uh, act to get right, that, isn't it? So I remember uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is one of my favourite films yeah. of all time, and Bob Hoskins, um, who basically had to act to... And to puppets, and yes. <laughs> and uh, he did it so well. He did, yeah. Uh, how, they, how he managed to get the timing and the... Uh, yeah, very, very clever. And I think, uh, yeah, Michael Caine's in the same, uh, same thing there. Yeah, absolutely, considering yeah. that knowing when you're doing... Sort of handheld puppetry you've got the set on two levels one where yeah. the actors walk and the other where the puppets yeah. come up just out of shot yeah. so yes very well done and by far my favorite of all time and it is only eight minutes and 47 seconds but worth every second of it is uh the night before christmas uh the um uh tom and jerry cartoon okay uh from 1941 uh, it was mm -hmm. now being a child of the 70s when BBC didn't quite manage to glue their schedules together as cynically as they do these <laughs> days, or they didn't have the big yes. trailers that they now run, mm -hmm. they'd off occasionally have the odd five or ten minutes when they'd got a gap. Oh, yes. And, and they'd always fill it with a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Well, it's better than so, putting the test card up, wasn't indeed. it? Indeed. And so, even though it's you know, classically children's stuff, it would always be shown in the evenings and Sundays and all sorts of odd times, yes. a Tom and Jerry would turn up. Yes. They were always great, and it's one of those classic things of uh, my uh, childhood and Hannah and Barbara at their very best. Uh, and this, I think, is an absolute classic, um, you know, usual thing, Christmas night, cat chases mouse, mouse chases cat, and they end up making friends. Uh, but it's very, very nice. It is. A, a real classic, that I does think. Sound very it's, nice. Uh, strongly recommend it uh, if you've not seen it before. And I guess 
people these days don't get to see Tom and Jerry anymore. No, which is a great shame. it is a shame. I mean, one of the th when you were talking about the BBC, you're absolutely right. And the, the, the ramshackle way they used to glue it together there was a wonderful thing that Dave Allen said on one of his routines. You know, Dave Allen, the great Irish sit-down yes. comedian, saying, "Who else but the BBC would put the midnight movie on at 11:30 or the black and white minstrel show in colour?" <laughs> Yes, yes. Okay, so my last choice um, is The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is often called a Tim Burton film, but that's not technically true. Burton wrote and uh, produced the film, but it's directed by Henry Selleck, who later went on to make one of my favourite childhood films, which is James and the Giant Peach, with um, uh, Miriam Margulies and Joanna Lumberley as Sponge and Spiker, which is perfect casting. Yeah. Uh, and the, most recently, he made a film in 3D called Coraline, which I, I saw in 3D and 2D, and it was one of my favourites of the year. Worth it alone for the scene of the dancing mushkas, which is yeah. fantastic. So the story is, you know, you have the character of Jack Skellington, who has become iconic in his own way, living in the, the, a far-off land where it's always Halloween, and they've got no concept of what Christmas is, so he decides to go and find what Christmas is. He comes back telling them about this demon called Santa Claus. <laughs> and he kidnaps Santa and dresses up in a suit and you know, goes off sort of trying to ruin Christmas but in the process discovers actually why Christmas means so much to, uh, to the, the people of Earth. And it's, you know, it's, it's Henry Selleck and Tim Burton doing what they do very, very well. But, you know, first of all, they're brilliant at stop motion. And you know, in, the, in the case of Coraline especially, just the ornateness of the colour and the movement is so fantastic and slightly grotesque at the same time. Yeah. And the characterization is superb. I mean, you've got the I've yet to see a better rendering of political corruption than the mayor with two heads, and one of them's got a massive smile and the other one's got gritted teeth and it sort of swivels around on a 360-degree axis. So that's very well done. And it, obviously all of the, the sort of the mad scientist subplot goes back to Tim Burton's uh, first films, Vincent and Frankenweenie, which the, the latter of which is actually re being remade by him at the moment. That'll be very interesting. So I think that it's... I remember thinking about The Nightmare Before Christmas and it was always one of those that I was never allowed to see as a child because people always, because my yeah. parents always assumed that it was a horror film and thought, oh yeah. no. But then eventually when I was about nine or ten I saw it and I just fell in love with it. I think it's a great Christmas film. Children will love it. Adults will love it. It's, it's, it's for everyone. Right. So we'll have a look at this week's new releases. Yes. After this one. Tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Boy Zone. No matter what. And we were just going to talk about The Snowman. Was it a cinema film or was it a TV film? Well, you seem convinced that it wasn't released in cinemas. I mean, I, I remember seeing it first on television, but yeah. I'm not entirely so sure. I think it was commissioned because it was the first Christmas Channel 4 went on air, and I think uh, I know Channel 4 films uh, sort of moved interchangeably between TV and cinema, didn't it? But, yes. Um, I'm sure it was originally commissioned for TV. Yeah. Well, re regardless, it's it's great. Yes, basically. that's uh, a brilliant, uh, brilliant, brilliant film. Yeah. Uh, never equalled, really, for me in yeah. terms of Christmas animation. But that's another example of you know, a Christmas film which actually has heartbreak in, because, of yes. course, no, yes. not to give away the ending, <laughs> but it warms up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and Alan Jones' infamous song, famous song. I like it. I don't, in the air. Yes. Yes, it might, is overplayed, but... We might uh, play that next Saturday. Why not? Yes. It'd be a nice way to finish off and the year. And Channel 4 is 30 years old next year. Fantastic. So, uh, and I think Channel 4 Films did some uh, some great things. And one of these days I'm going to dig out a recording of uh, East of Ipswich, which I think is one of the best films they ever made, which was 82-83. It's a semi-true film um, by Michael Palin. Okay. And uh, well, worth, uh, well worth seeing. It's... Uh, Great, great film. Well, let's see if we can get that sometime yes. in the new year. Yes, yes. It may take a bit of finding, I think, but we will uh, see if we can... Right, uh, I'll get searching. Yes, right. Um, shall we have a look at the uh, the new releases this Yeah, week, OK. Then? And we shall start with Alvin and the Chipmunks and Chipwreck. Yes, a uh, horrible pun. Third in the series of recent reboots. Um, do you remember Alvin and the Chipmunks, the TV series? Uh, yes, I do. The animated yes, one, yeah, because yeah. I, I remember that. and yeah. quite enjoyed it, actually. Um, so this was originally meant to be in 3D, but I think that got cancelled at the last minute. Directed by Mike Mitchell, who directed the fourth Shrek film, Shrek Forever After, and he does have a bit part acting role in uh, Puss in Boots, which is, and I just can't resist saying it like that. Most infamously, however, he made Juice Bigelow Male Gigolo with Rob Schneider, 
about nine years ago. It's just, no less said about the better. So this time, no, you have you know, Alvin, Simon and Theodore with their long-suffering human companion called Dave, and they go on a cruise holiday, and uh, Dave ends up getting, no, slapstick happens, and uh, Dave ends up getting fed up with them and maroons them on a desert island where they find this strange um, figure who is, you know, on the island talking to basketballs, which is, uh, no, of course, a reference to Castaway. Um... Some people might have a problem with Alvin and the Chipmunks purely out of the, you know, how annoying the voices yeah. can be. W would you fall into that category? By any um, time? no, no. I mean, it's a kid's thing. Isn't yeah, it? it is what it is. So yes. I think, you no, know, to complain, it's like, you know, complaining yes. about the voices in Alvin and the Chipmunks is like complaining that you can see the strings in Thunderbirds. It's yeah. kind of integral to it. Yeah, indeed. Um, but I think the real problem with the film, in the first two Alvin and the Chipmunks films, they were sort of ropey and rather innocuous, but they did their job of, you no know, being kids' films. The problem with this one is that they've gone for more of a Shrekish approach in terms of one joke for the children, one joke for the adults, but they didn't quite meet in the middle. I mean, the plot of sending them on holiday, it's the classic running out of steam plot that you think, oh, we've got nothing else to do, let's put them on a cruise ship in this neighborhood on the buses did or no, anything like that. The, all the in-jokes about Castaway, where you've got you know, the guy talking to the basketball, which, you know, in Tom Hanks, it's Will, he calls Wilson and gives a beard and so forth. No, that's a two-tier joke, because the adults will sit there going, oh, that's a joke of Castaway, whereas the children will go, um, what's this? I haven't seen Castaway, so that's not good. Yeah. And when it does do the kid-friendly stuff, it's by and large lowest common denominator, you know, half-decently done slapstick, but it's not that well made. Yeah. So... I think very, very young children will, will find it perfectly possible, but they won't enjoy it as much as the first two films. It will be, it will take a lot of money, but it will be in one ear and out the other. Indeed. Um, actually, talking about Thunderbirds, the live-action version of that was on TV last Sunday afternoon. I'd forgotten just how awful that film is. I'm glad I missed it. <laughs> Are you not tempted to sort bring of bring back, me... Bring back the puppets. Well, were you not tempted to sort of bring me up and say, do you fancy a horror film tonight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a horror film as well. <laughs> uh, so it was on uh, Sunday afternoon, not a great way to spend an afternoon, I have to tell you. Um, I think we were doing something around the house, probably putting the Christmas tree up or something, and it's just from those little... <laughs> end up throwing inane, the baubles at the screen. Inane rubbish you have in the background, and it really was inane. <laughs> right, the next one we've got, uh, which hopefully be rather better, is Wreckers. Wreckers, okay, um, it's a British indie film, uh, debut from writer-director D.R. Hood, and part of what's known as the Southern Gothic tradition, which in America would be things like uh, the work of Terence Malick or David Gordon Green. In uh, this country, Southern Gothic would be more something like uh, well, something like this, and I suppose the works of... Well, Shane Meadows isn't really Southern Gothic, but it's the idea of... But no, it's you know, the idea of putting sort of artistic trappings on a rather yeah. gritty situation. So the story is Benedict Cumberbatch, who's in Sherlock, and was... And we shall come back to that. Yes, and was also in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I saw again, actually. I went to the Playhouse and saw yeah. it, and no, every bit as good as the first time. Uh, he's a school teacher who brings his new wife back to the place where he grew up, the little sleepy village. They're trying to have a baby, and everything seems fine, uh, but then her brother, his brother-in-law, turns up along with the other group of people from his past and basically all hell breaks loose. Yeah. It's very firmly in a tradition of straw dogs insofar as it's a film about a nascent family struggling to defend themselves in the case of straw dogs from sort of violent hicks but in the case of yeah. this it's you no know, um you no know, from the specters of the past which you no know, is sort of fitting in terms of christmas because of the ghost yeah. of christmas past and so forth. I think it's not particularly memorable but Benedict Cumberbatch is, does give a pretty decent performance. He's one of those actors who has that that sort of fractured ethereal quality where you're never sure quite what's going on. So I don't think there's any reason to see it in cinemas, but, you know, if you find it somewhere and you walk in as a Benedict Cumberbatch fan, you will enjoy it. And he is a very, very good actor. Yes. Right. Uh, one that's probably not going to be quite enthusiastic about is Magic to Win. Yeah, which was technically released last week, but I think they had a problem with the distributors, so it was sort of bunted forward yeah. to the next week. Uh, it's a Chinese comedy directed by Wilson Yip, uh, which follows uh, a girl who goes to high school and she becomes involved with the high school volleyball team. One day she inherits magical powers from one of her professors and uses it to make the team from a very rubbish team into a really great team which can beat everyone while uh, battling uh, big wizards. Um, sound familiar? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you you sort of take Harry Potter mixed with the visuals of Scott Pilgrim versus the World and a bit of the Worst Witch as well. Do you remember the Worst Witch? No. That CITV no. program where um, Georgina Sherrington, I think it was, no, playing Mildred Hubble, who goes to the the School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Yeah, and CITV days were a long time. <laughs> Ten years ago, something like that. Tinker and Tucker Club, you know. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But no, that, that's the thing of, you know, a, a young, an ordinary girl who's actually quite rubbish at witchcraft goes to a witchcraft school and ends up sort of saving the school. So it does essentially do that. And 
it, I mean, it might have lost quite a bit in translation in the sense that, no, there's been reports of um, screenings with an even proportion of Chinese speakers and people reading the subtitles and all the Chinese people were getting all the in-jokes whereas the subtitles wouldn't get. So I can understand that it's lost something in translation, but it's one of those films which, unlike Scott Pilgrim, it looks good but it very quickly runs out of scheme, where Scott Pilgrim looks fantastic and keeps building steam right up to yeah. the end. So go and rent that instead. Right, so mixed bag so far. We so far. We'll be back in a few moments with the rest of them. Of the district. This is Lionheart Radio. Well, the last three and a half minutes seamlessly edited out of the podcast. <laughs> we shall get back to the films, and the next one on our list is Dreams of a Life. Yeah, which is a, a very interesting piece of work. It's a dramatised documentary written and directed by Carol Morley about um, the rather harrowing story of Joy Vincent. Um, she was a, a young lady who was discovered um, dead in her flat three years after she'd actually died, um, and they'd only found her after they'd come to basically repossess her flat and they found that she'd she died in front of her TV whilst wrapping Christmas presents and the electricity hadn't been cut off and the TV was still on after three years and basically no one had come looking for her, Gosh. nobody had, yeah, very harrowing stuff. Um, so in the film, directed by Carol Morley, you have um, interviews with uh, the various members of her family, including her three sisters, I think, um, intercut with reenactments showing how she was discovered and the instinctive thing that you'd think is well this was someone who was a, sort of a natural loner and no it's not surprising but actually no the film shows that she was actually very vivacious and charismatic had a wonderful singing voice and no was well known it's so uh, and so it, the thing that it reminded me of is there was a film released uh, early last year i think called the arbor which was a dramatized documentary by cleo bernard about uh, the late bradford playwright andrea dunbar who wrote yeah. things like rita sue and bob too and um uh, what that film did was a very interesting thing where it took recordings of her family and friends talking about her and then had actors lip-syncing to them. So you had actors on screen playing the characters, but actually the words they were speaking were from the real people. It was a very interesting artistic yes. device. Yes. And, what, and that created a sort, of, a sort of haunting quality to the Arbor because it, had, it was the idea of this one person who was very conflicted and very interesting, but no, regardless of whether they were conflicted or not, everyone's got a different opinion and a view of them depending yeah. on the little bits and pieces that you knew and in the end all or none of the opinions are valid and dreams of a life attempts to do the same thing it doesn't do it with anything like you know the the artistic panache of that although panache is you know perhaps the wrong word to use when you're talking about such a dark subject matter but it is a very interesting documentary about loneliness and how people who are seemingly normal on the surface and everything's going for them yeah. can just slip through society's net and you know people have read into it all about saying you know uh it's about how individualism has you no know, killed community and you no know, there's no such thing as society anymore and it's about consumerism i think you can read into it as much as you like and it's not something i'd readily make around for sort of feel-good festive viewing because it is a bit tough but yeah. if you're yeah. wanting something more sort of engrossing and, well, not highbrow necessarily, but sort of thought-provoking before you get into the swathe of sort of feel-good festive yeah. fun, then Dreams of a Life is the one that you should check Does out. Does it get to an understanding of why at the end? I think it leaves it pretty open-ended. I mean, there are various explanations offered, but I think the, the message that it gives is not this is exactly why it happens, but if you know somebody like this and you haven't seen for a while, go and check that they're all right because you never yeah. know. Final film is going to interest me because uh, I have to say after the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, TV series, I said I'd come back to him. Yes. I was going to find it difficult to go back to any other version because mm. it's just been so different, so yes. brilliant. And yeah, do you want to go back to um, yeah Victorian London in the smog and Baker Street? Well, speaking as a big Jeremy Brett fan, I, that's the version that I tend to gravitate yeah. towards, but I do love the new Sherlock very much. Um, and actually, Caitlin Moran, the uh, the journalist, her re TV review of the year comes out in today's times, I think, and she'll be raving on about Sherlock, because when that was broadcasting, she couldn't talk about anything else. So, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows is the sequel to the 2009 version of Sherlock Holmes, which was... Which was interesting because um, it was directed by Guy Ritchie, who has not got a very good pedigree by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it was one of those films which was, it was released on Boxing Day, which is a traditional sign in, in, in filmmaking circles of, if you've got a film that either you don't know what to do with it, or you've got no real faith that it's going to get you no know, good critical reviews, you put it out on Boxing Day, the idea being that all the critics are on holiday, so they're not going to notice it, and everyone's so sort of stuffed full of turkey and hungover that they're not going to want something 
incredibly nuanced and thought-provoking, yeah. so they'll just go along and enjoy it. And Sherlock Holmes went out, and it went, no, people went in with absolutely no expectations. It turned out to be Guy Ritchie's best film, the first time he'd actually made a good, solid, romping drama with a good relationship. And it hung around the cinemas for something like three months and then took bucket loads on DVD. So now we have a sequel. Guy Ritchie is back in the saddle. He's reuniting with Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Jude Law as Holmes and Watson, respectively. In the first film, you had uh, the duo teaming up to take on the, the evil Lord Blackwood, played by, you know, Hollywood's villain of choice, Mark Strong, who does yeah. a very good job playing he pretty does, much any yes. villain. In this one, you have the big fish, so to speak, because it's uh, Professor Moriarty, played um, by uh, Jared Harris. Now, this will be difficult when we're coming in comparison to the TV Sherlock, because, of course, the TV Sherlock ended with Moriarty being unveiled as this sort of camp Scotsman, and it was the place <laughs> with the bomb in, on Watson in the swimming pool. So yes. I'm, I'm wondering how they're going to sort that out. Yes, indeed. So, you, I think you have to get away from the comparison because I think that whereas the Mark Gatiss Sherlock on TV is very much looking at reinventing, readapting the character for the 21st century, sort of yeah. solving all the problems of how Sherlock Holmes would work in an age when we no longer have deer stalkers and magnifying glasses. Yes. I think that the, the Guy Ritchie films are basically taking the mythos of Sherlock Holmes and doing it slightly more tongue-in-cheek and frivolously, but with the intention of entertaining rather than you no know, updating or modernising yeah. and so... The plot in this case revolves around the death of the Crown Prince of Austria. You have Inspector Lestrade, played by Eddie Marsden, who, if you remember, we talked about because he turns up in Philip Ridley's Heartless yeah. as Weapons Man, who <laughs> sort of sells it and asks uh, Jamie to do a murder. Um, so Lestrade thinks it's suicide. Obviously, Holmes thinks he's wrong because, no, he doesn't have any confidence in Lestrade's abilities at all. And they go off on the trail of Moriarty, joined by Gypsy Fortune Teller, played by Numi Rapace, who uh, played the girl in the original versions of uh, the Stig Larsen trilogy, The Girl with the Trail. Yeah. Tattoo, of which the remake of the first film by David Fincher is coming out next week, so we'll talk about that. You also have, no, the one, the thing that's got the film a lot of publicity is the fact that you have Stephen Fry playing Mycroft, the mis no, Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother who is just complete miserableist and does all the accounts for the government. Yeah. And the thing that's got the film a lot of attention is that he has a nude scene. Ooh. Which is, I think, his first cinematic nude scene since Wild. Did you, do you remember Wild? when no, he was Because no. that features a love scene between him and Jude Law, so they go back a bit. <laughs> and that was, no, that was actually yeah. very good. So... Like I say, I don't. If you if you're a fan of Sherlock Holmes, either the original Conan Doyle stories, or you love the new version on TV, which I do think is great, you need to. If you're going to see this, you need to go in with sort of your brain checked as if to say this is not going to be the most meticulous, faithful version. It is in the end a, a sort of pastiche feel, yeah. without being like the sort of the Gene Wilder's Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother films, which are much more into parody. I do think it's on a par with the first film. It's more action-packed, and it's a little bit more baggy in terms of the story, but it has the same emotional core, which is at the end, the relationship between Holmes and Watson, because the thing is that Watson is wants to get married or has got married. Holmes doesn't want him to get married because Watson's the only friend that he's got, and he wants to go off on adventures and smoke pipes and solve mysteries, whereas Watson just wants a quiet life writing about this guy. <laughs> and, no, you have Jared Harris chewing the scenery a bit as Moriarty. I mean, you have to sort of chew the scenery with Moriarty. That's just... Yeah. We're on our way out. Okay, I will speed this up. I think the fight sequences are very good. It's very nicely shot with a gothic touch, a bit like Burke and Hare. Good festive fun and film of the week. Great. Well worth going to see. Yes. And we're back next Saturday for normal time. For normal review of the year. Right. See you then. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.